world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show, day four of our Election Day coverage. Uh, last night, the president addressing the nation uh, as a... Uh, Votes are still rolling in and into this morning, and uh, the same states that were in doubt uh, for the last uh, three days remain in doubt. But uh, not in doubt, at least in the president's mind, is that uh, if it was just the legal ballots being counted, he's the winner. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late, we're looking at them very strongly, but a lot of votes came in late. President Trump uh, reiterating the suggestion he had made uh, all along when the push for a vote by mail election was uh, at its uh, ascendancy in these blue states, that it was going to open the door to corruption, to fraud. That I've been talking about mail-in voting for a long time. It's, uh, it's really destroyed our system. It's a corrupt system. And it makes people corrupt, even if they aren't by nature. But they become corrupt. It's too easy. They want to find out how many the votes they need, and then they seem to be able to find them. They wait and wait, and then they find them. And you see that on election night. And, uh, I mean, again, talking about uh, these uh, areas that have a rich history of questions as to the administration of their elections. There's tremendous litigation going on. And this is a case where they're trying to steal an election. They're trying to rig an election. But you've seen it all. The officials overseeing the counting in Pennsylvania and other key states are all part of a corrupt Democrat machine. Uh, Newt Gingrich, appearing on Sean Hannity's program yesterday, uh, echoed the president's statements. And point of fact, uh, maybe the most vociferous response to what has transpired over the last three days that uh, we've heard yet, including the president and his family. Listen. I've been active in this since 1958. That's 62 years. I am the angriest I have been in that entire six decades. You have a group of corrupt people who have absolute contempt for the American people, who believe that we are so spineless, so cowardly, so unwilling to stand up for ourselves, that they can steal the presidency and we'll wring our hands, bring in a few lawyers, and do nothing. My hope is that President Trump will lead the millions of Americans who understand exactly what's going on. The Philadelphia machine is corrupt. The the Atlanta machine is corrupt. The machine in Detroit is corrupt. And they're trying to steal the presidency, and we should not allow them to do that. First of all, under federal law, we should lock up the people who are breaking the law. You stop somebody from being an observer, you just broke federal law. You hide and put up paper so nobody can see what you're doing, you just broke federal law. You bring in ballots that aren't real, you just broke federal law. I am sick and tired of corrupt left-wing Democrats who believe that we are too timid and too easy to intimidate, and therefore, let us go out and steal it. That's exactly, I mean, no one should have any doubt. You are watching an effort to steal the presidency of the United States. And this is not about Donald Trump. This is about the American people. Do the American people have the right in an honest election with honest, legitimate ballots to pick their leader? Or are we now just sheep 
to be dominated by the high-tech businesses, the news media, and the various political machines, and are we supposed to surrender? So I, I think this is one of the great, this is a crisis in the American system. Well, and uh, to the question of which are we, are we uh, just sheep to be dominated by big tech and big media and big government, um, or are we a free people that will demand uh, free and fair elections? I, I think the answer on that is uh, particularly divided. For more, uh, we're pleased to be joined again by Michael Anton. He's a lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College. Senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, former national security official in the Trump administration and author of The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael Anton, thanks for joining us. Um, your reaction to uh, what the president asserted last night and what uh, Newt Gingrich asserted after him? Look, they're more certain than I am that theft has taken place. You know, I, I, I try to be careful here because people are far up fraud or whatever will we'll demand proof. And I will freely have to freely admit I don't have proof. I certainly don't have proof at the level and uh, authenticity that these people would say. But what I say to them or that, that they would demand, what I say back is, wait a minute, we have all these evidence of all these crazy irregularities. Vote, vote counting stops, ballots being found, many huge tranches are literally 100%, not a single Trump vote in them, ballots that are marked only for president and for no other race, all these things that are irregularities. And we're not being given explanations. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say no. There's everyone, there are a few things that have been raised. I talked to a lawyer yesterday who's helping out in Pennsylvania, and there were some you know, questions that came up about a couple of issues in, in a state here or there. And he said, they did have explanations for this one and this one, but you know that still leaves like 99 others that, for which there's no explanation. If they, I'm, I have to assume if they had explanations, they would offer them, right? If, if, they, if they could explain to the American people, no, we realize this looks funny, but um, here's why we found this boxes of ballots. Here's why this happened. Here's why that happened. They would offer the explanation. So either they don't have an explanation or they, must, or they think there's some benefit in just saying, you know what, we're not going to explain it. We're just going to call you names, say that you're a conspiracy theorist and anti-democratic and, and threatening our election system, and we're going to ram this through, which is the way it looks like it's going. All I can say is that if that happens, something like 70 million people, if not more, are going to believe the result was illegitimate. I don't see how that helps the country. I don't see how it helps the system. I don't see how that helps Joe Biden, to be perfectly honest. But it's look like it looks like that's what they're trying to do. And, and I mean, it's just developed the implications of that from your perspective. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, is out this week uh, since the election with sort of half ass unity messages, along with his belief that he'll be elected. But that is hardly going to uh, address the uh, legitimacy concerns, uh, to be polite about it, that uh, Trump supporters have. No, it won't. Nothing. I mean, look, in, in, in my estimation, the only thing that will address those concerns are plausible, serious and true explanations for these all of these irregularities and also complete transparency. Let's stop defying, you know, court orders. Let's stop kicking Republican observers out. Let's stop putting, um, you know, uh, cardboard or, 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 or paper in the window so people can't see in. Let's let's have a completely transparent count. Right. With 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 Democratic observers, Republican observers, neutral observers. Let's not just use aggressive state and political power to uh, favor one side and harm the other. Right. If Joe Biden and the Democrats believe, as they say they believe, they say they're convinced they won, they got more votes, they're legit, these are legitimate votes, that if, then if that's true, then any kind of fair count and fair observation of the process will bear it out. Right. And, 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 then, and then 
Trump supporters, you know, maybe not all of them. I'm sure there will be some diehard types who don't want to uh, accept defeat. But I think the vast majority of them say, okay, we're very disappointed. We love our guy. We wanted him to be reelected. We were excited. But we accept this result because we, we've seen the uh, transparency. We've seen and have been convinced by what looks to be an honest count. And while we're disappointed, we accept it. They're not doing that. That is not what's happening. They're not being transparent, and they're not offering explanations. And uh, so they're going to get, they're going to get, I think, that reaction, which is, okay, you guys stole it. I think that's what a lot of people are going to conclude. Uh, the Wall Street Journal opining that the election's clearest losers were Speaker Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and the public faces of the unhinged left. If the count, as it currently stands now, stands up, do you agree with that, that uh, the, the radical left is uh, the big loser here? No, I don't. If the count currently stands up, the radical left won. Well, I mean, it didn't win everything, but it won what it needed to win. It, it really desperately wanted to prevent President Trump from getting a second term. It will get into power in the person of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the people they appoint. I mean, it'll be harder for them to appoint real radicals because the Republicans have apparently held the Senate. But no, I don't. I, look, I think the Wall Street Journal are right to say these people lost to some degree, but they're not the biggest losers. The biggest losers will be the president and his 70 million supporters who it, look if this if this i have to keep saying if because i freely as i said i freely admit i have no proof yeah. it just looks really fishy and they're not offering explanations you know so when something looks fishy and they don't offer you an explanation and they resist any kind of investigation or any kind of participation in the process with outside observers it's only human nature to think there must be something fishy going on you must have something to hide so if that's the case and this goes through, there'll be absolutely nothing to stop them from repeating it in, in subsequent elections. It, uh, you know, if Republicans don't stand up and fight, especially, then there'll be nothing stopping them. And so the real biggest losers will be the seven, Trump's 70 million, that figure may go up, voters who will be effective, have been effectively disenfranchised. Because you can bet whatever talk Joe Biden is giving about amnesty, the Democratic Party is the party of the oligar oligarchic wealth concentration in the, on the coasts. It's the party of the very, very high and the bottom rungs of the socioeconomic ladder that sticks it to the middle. And the middle is going to get it good and hard if this goes through. Well, nice H.L. Mencken reference there. Yeah. Uh, w uh, w when we come back with Michael Anton, w if, if it is Biden, then what comes after Trump? I want to explore that. Michael Anton is the author of The Stakes, America at the, no at the Point of No Return, lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. We'll be right back. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show uh, joe sternberg writing in uh, the wall street journal what comes after biden versus trump ask the uk uh he suggests uh he writes specifically uh uh, yes, normal is what comes after Trump. American voters rejected millenarianism, uh, meaning upheaval, transformation, on the right and the left. President Trump's silent majority isn't silent, but it isn't a majority either. Further evidence of voters' pragmatic intentions come from what they've done in Congress. The, again, the appearance that the Republicans will keep the Senate. He uh, writes, Americans voted for politics, the wheeling and dealing that necessarily accompanies a divided government with ambiguous popular mandates. And he compares it to what happened after Brexit in the U.K., where uh, the uh, British electorate 
uh, moved past Niall for Nigel Farage and rejected the far left uh, vision of England under Jeremy Corbyn and um, uh, responded with a center right sort of government. And that's uh, what we'll have here, except it'll be center left uh, to get reaction to that assertion about what comes after Trump. If there if this is going to be after Trump as of January 20th, please be rejoined by Michael Anton. He's the author of The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return, which I highly recommend. And he's a lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, former national security official in the Trump administration. Michael, what about what uh, Joe Sternberg uh, suggests? I, are we, are I, we paralleling I, I, England? No, I find that completely la- – well, in some ways, but not in the ways that he said, right? So first of all, he leaves out the fact the, the British people vote for Brexit and elites – tie Brexit in knots for three years, three, uh, three and a half years, really, right, to prevent it from happening, to thwart the democratic will of the people. And, you know, in a, in a, in a moment of, of strength and clarity, the British people voted overwhelmingly for Boris Johnson, uh, and, and they finally got Brexit in the teeth of their elites. But in fact, even though the conservative party is in power, if you actually look at what's going on over there and how um, um, the Johnson government governs and the very, very strong uh, power of the bureaucracy and other institutions. Britain is in a way much like America, a kind of neoliberal um, globalist oligarchy, if I may use some buzzwords there, but in an even more advanced stage than ours. I mean, they formally restrict the rights of free speech and I I can go on and on and on, but like the idea that just because the nominal conservative won on the on the strength of Brexit, that makes Britain center right in its governing is is crazy. I think what will happen if he's right, we're not going to get a center left coalition from Biden, whatever that's supposed to mean. Um, we're going to go right back to 2015, the uh, uh, waning Obama years, right back to the trajectory we were on then, and they're going to resume that trajectory and intensify it with amnesties and all the things that they talked about doing that have been on the liberal wish list for a long time. There's nothing centrist about any of that. The only thing I could say that may nominally be centrist about it is unlike leftists of old, they don't want to confiscate, um, they don't want to confiscate wealth because the rich are on their side. I mean, some of their followers do some of the, you know, Bernie bro types and part of the leftist coalition, but the people who run it realize that, you know, the, you know I think it's of, of the 50 richest congressional districts in America, 46 are represented by Democrats. It's, it's hard to even name a, a, a Republican billionaire. I can think of, you know, Sheldon Adelson and, you know, a couple of big Republican donors, but, you know, the tech class, the banking class, all of these guys, they're on, they're, they're on the left side, they're on the Democratic side. So, um, the old that's the only thing centrist is you know they're not for uh, they're not for expropriation anymore although it remains to be seen if they may try to come out for um you know uh, i know very very punitive and punishing taxes on the on the on the middle class but the you know people like jeff bezos are going to be pretty well shielded from that i would think uh, an argument that's being advanced is uh, hey, hey republican party had a pretty good night on election night actually uh, beat the street estimates of picking up five seats in the house as opposed to uh, falling into a, a larger minority position there. Uh, you've had uh, these rather, uh, you had, uh, and you had a, a couple of interesting upsets. Obviously, the tracking to hold the Senate if uh, those Georgia Senate races hold up, as well as Tom Tillis in North Carolina, which they very well uh, might, I think, more likely than not. Well, there's going to be, I mean, there's going to be runoffs in Georgia and right. there's all kinds of shenanigans. This is, this is very worrisome. So we don't really know what's going on in no, Fulton no. County in Atlanta. Well, and if the Republicans don't stand up to this, right, if we just accept, um, then they could do it, you know, if they get away with it this time, assuming that there's something shady going on in Fulton County, which I repeat, 
I can't prove, but it looks bad, right? And we're not, it's not being explained to us what's going on. So assuming there's something shady going on and they get away with it, there'll be absolutely nothing to stop them from taking not one but two Senate seats following that. Well, uh, you, that, your point is well taken, but, but let me develop this a little bit more. Uh, we also had this, this and I, I don't know the particulars of these races, but it is interesting that the House speakers in both Rhode Island and Vermont at the state level lost their reelection bids to Republicans, which is an odd occurrence. Uh, the, the suggestion here is that, you know, President Trump, uh, the coalition he put together actually is a pretty good coalition and, and Republicans did pretty well with the exception of Trump. And it's OK that he goes away because it was just a personality thing. So we can continue the Trump uh, sort of uh, coalition. It's just going to be without him. I think there is some sentiment like that in the Republican Party, which I do think is delusional. I, I think Trump energized the Republican base and, and frankly, you know, this will sound crazy, unified the party in a way that no figure had in a long time. He didn't unify the party with its elites, but that's because the party's elites, its intellectuals, its think tankers, and a lot of its congressional leadership have been out of touch with the base for a long time. President Trump unified the base and expanded the base for the first time in a long time uh, and, and got them fired up and energized. There's no going back to the Reagan coalition or the Reagan consensus. This is to take nothing away from Reagan. But every political leader, every successful political leader is a creature of their times. And Ronald Reagan is no different. And we can't keep running the 1980 playbook uh, and expecting that uh, we're going to win elections or, or energize voters. If the Republican Party is to have a future, its future will be uh, a Trumpist one. That is to say, focused on core economic concerns of the middle class and the heartland of the old economy workers, um, focused on immigration restriction, focused on uh, redomiciling manufacturing here, standing up to uh, you know, predatory trading practices, especially from China. Uh, it's not going to be. Uh, that sort of old chamber of commerce slash country club republicanism. And if they try to take it back to that, they will find that they are a party leadership without a base. What if in they my estimation? Yeah. What, what if they uh, what if you had somebody like a Josh Hawley or a Tom Cotton try and continue this direction, generally speaking, but obviously not without um, with with very different personality than Trump? Well, I have I would have two things to say about that. Number one, it's not clear to me. While, while both Senators Hawley and Senator Cotton have been supportive of Trump from the Senate, it's not clear to me that their own personal policy outlooks match what I just described. They seem to me to be a little bit more conventionally Republican than the president is. And then the second thing you ask, which is really important, I think it's kind of obvious, you know, do either one of these guys have the ability to fire up and connect with Trump's huge base the way Trump does. Not, not to take anything away from both of those senators, whom I respect, but I think the obvious answer is they don't. <laughs> but that, that says less about them than about Trump's extraordinary appeal to people that is, as we have so, so far seen, you know, not, not, not replicable. So the party does have a problem. I think we need a Trumpist party that uh, is much more uh, economically populist and nationalist and concerned about the middle class and so on and so forth. But we also need to find leaders who will connect with voters in the same way. And right now, I'm not sure I see anybody on the horizon who fits both bills. He is Michael Anton, author of The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael Anton, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this 
is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show at a campaign event in Atlanta, Georgia. Yesterday, Donald Trump Jr. showed up and he had uh, this to say to the Trump supporters assembled. I'd like to know that because I've lost all faith in the process. And when I see millions of Americans that feel the same way and have no faith in the process, just assume that, hey, guess what? You know those ballots are going to magically show up just like they did, right? You saw that line on the curve up north, you know, 100 percent of votes. We, I went to sleep. I woke up two hours later after not sleeping for three days. I said, that's amazing. 130,000 votes. Not one of them for Donald Trump. No one, no one believes that this is real. And for us to have faith in the republic, we need transparency in the process. And so what I can promise you this is everyone knows it. Donald Trump is a fighter. Meanwhile, uh, Joe Biden moved from the basement to the Rose Garden. Each ballot must be counted. And that's what we're going to see going through now. And that's how it should be. Democracy is sometimes messy. It sometimes requires a little patience as well. But that patience has been rewarded now for more than 240 years with a system of governance that's been the envy of the world. And we continue to feel, Senator and I, we continue to feel very good about where things stand. We have no doubt that when the count is finished, Senator Harris and I will be declared the winners. So I ask everyone to stay calm, all the people to stay calm. Process is working. The count is being completed and uh, we'll know very soon. One side has uh, lost all faith or had their faith substantially shaken. The other side process is working its way through. Everything is fine. Just uh, relax, be patient, and uh, we'll have an outcome in short order that you can trust. Is there either side that has um, more of the weight of evidence on their side? And is there some perhaps uh, space in the middle between the two? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Rabbi Dove Fisher, high stakes litigation attorney and adjunct professor of law. He's a rabbi of young Israel in Orange County, California. Rabbi Fisher, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So um, Donald Trump Jr. and to some extent uh, his dad, the president, suggesting that uh, the election is uh, being stolen. They've lost faith in the process. Joe Biden has faith in the process. Should we have faith in the process? I don't know, and therefore we need to have the courts take a look at it. There is a chance that the thing is honest. It could be. Mm -hmm. And then there's a chance that one or two or three states really are being stolen. And it's going to come down to the courts. And then what's going to happen is the courts themselves are going to find themselves in a real mess. Because like what happened in Bush v. Gore, you're going to have Republican-appointed court judges and ultimately Supreme Court justices sitting on one side, and you're going to have Democrats on the other side, and all eyes are going to be on Amy Coney Barrett. She's going to have this enormous burden of having to balance what she sees as just versus the perceptions of whether she's being fair if she inclines one way. You've got John Roberts always trying to maintain the court's reputation by staying out of everything. So we're never going to know really the bottom line. It's totally believable that there's been a lot of corruption, and it's totally believable that everything is honest. Um, uh, it's interesting you bring up Bush v. Gore, because I think, and, and the justices, the potential politics of it, because I think uh, people forget that um, in the per curiam decision in that case, the court first ruled seven to two on equal protection grounds that the recount be stopped because of the use of different standards of counting in different counties, which violated the equal protection clause. And you have a similar dynamic, it's not exactly on point, but it's similar 
potentially in Pennsylvania with differing standards for rehabilitating mail-in ballots that are being pursued in different counties. So the legal nuances I know are lost on the, most of the media and and and, and the, thereby the public. But, um, you know, there's there's a, there are some legitimate bases that need to be explored, as you're sort of intimating. Yeah, we never really ran into this kind of mail-in balloting before. With COVID, you have certain corrupt politicians talking about things like in Pennsylvania, where they're going to accept late ballots without postmarks. And if you don't have a postmark, you don't even have a proof that the ballot was mailed before Election Day versus after Election Day. So you run into that problem. We know that even in honest balloting, or maybe honest balloting by mail, as happened recently in a New York, one or two New York elections, you end up with thousands of ballots get disqualified because signatures don't match and there are other problems as well. So it's a tremendous mess. That's why I wrote in the American Spectator that the one thing is that even if it turns out that the Democrats have won the presidency, at least they've lost their much greater expectation of a great blue wave, which means they're not going to have the Senate. And because they're not going to have the Senate, they're not going to be able to do any of that crazy stuff, such as packing the courts or doing away with the Electoral College or making Puerto Rico a state. And it's going to keep things under control. Well, and you're going to find out what yeah, that's like. Yeah, well, I, I, I want to address that when we come back. And also um, the uh, the way this is being reported as as if this is the first assertion of voter fraud in American history uh, that the president is making more with. Rabbi Duff Fisher, high-stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law, and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Rabbi Duff Fisher, high stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. Rabbi Fisher, you mentioned before the break that Republicans will retain the Senate and therefore that puts a a block on some of the more radical inclinations of the Democrat Socialist Party. You know, I uh, counselor, I hate to uh, assume facts, not in evidence. And if you have two runoffs for those two Georgia Senate seats, you know, anything is possible. So so we don't exactly know yet. I think it's more likely than not. I would agree with you, but it's not a fait accompli. In a lot of ways, I'm a libertarian, not a libertarian party voter. But ever since I've read Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, We the Living, The Fountainhead, I've been very strongly impacted by her thinking. Nevertheless, these morons who run third-party candidacies on the Libertarian Party line, I don't know what they're trying to accomplish, but what they've effectively done, as you mentioned, the Georgia Senate election. So David Perdue is at 49.8%. He's just an itsy-bitsy short of that 50.1%. And meantime, the Libertarian got 2.3%. I hope they're really proud of themselves. Same thing in the Georgia presidential election, where Biden, if the count is honest, and I don't know that it is, but at best, Biden is ahead of Trump by about 1,500 votes. And meantime, the Libertarian picked up 61,000 votes. So the idea that you've got to have this 
even more pure kind of small government approach, you end up with a Democrat socialist president. You end up with a Democrat socialist. You want a Senate like that? That's part of it. But I think that when Georgia goes to a runoff, I think we're very well situated to pick up most of those idiotic libertarian votes and uh, to be able to carry both those seats, at least one of them. In your piece in The Spectator uh, that you referenced, you also uh, go through some uh, interesting case studies of of, of at least allegations of voter fraud in American history and, and how that played out, the finding of ballots late and so on and so forth. I mean, we know I, we know all about that where I live in Chicago, that this is not fiction, as the left would have you believe. But don't you find it interesting, the, the idea that Trump is asserting that the, the election may have been stolen, that he won the account with legal ballots and the, the rush to say, well, you don't have any evidence for that. And stuff. Well, they're, they're filing suits and they're going to have to present evidence if they want to win the day in court. And so that process is playing itself out. But the rhetoric of President Trump says nothing particularly new and certainly the existence of bona fide instances of voter fraud is replete throughout American history. That is so true, because while the left-wing media is talking about how Trump is a bad loser and asserting all kinds of allegations that no one ever asserted before, the reality is that there's a long history of Democrats truly stealing elections. On the one hand, you've got the intimations. You mentioned Chicago, of course, the famous 1960 presidential election that Richard Nixon probably won, and in which, you know, last moment they suddenly found votes in Chicago. They gave it to John Kennedy. You've got landslide Lyndon. Lyndon Johnson made it into the national scene by winning a Texas United States Senate seat uh, through suddenly, likewise, just magically finding votes, and he ends up winning by like 77 votes. You had the Minnesota United States Senate election that Norm Coleman had won re-election as a Republican. He was up by 725 votes. And these were the years before these three days and five days more of mail balloting. He just won by 725 votes, uh, 725. Then the Democrats suddenly start finding votes after the election's over, giving it to Al Franken by 310 votes, including 400 prohibited convicted felons whose votes simply weren't allowed. And then you had Ted Stevens, the United States senator in Alaska, who was on his way to another re-election. All of a sudden, the Democrats find some way to convict him of something that was not even illegal. He gets convicted a week before the vote. As a result, he loses the election. Right after the elections, it goes before Judge Emmett Sullivan, of all people, no friend of Republicans, who throws out all the charges, says that Stevens is honest. Six of the prosecutors get investigated. Lead prosecutor ends up having to leave the government. Another prosecutor ends up committing suicide while he's being investigated. But as a result, Ted Stevens had lost the seat for doing nothing wrong. Back in 1956 in Rhode Island, the governorship was stolen when the Democrat Governor Dennis Roberts manipulated votes after Republican challenger Chris Del Sesto had beaten him, and he turned Rhode Island into Rogue Island. You write in your piece, if Jim Crow was an evil in a prior century, we now have John Vulture when it comes to our elections. What do you mean? What they're now doing is if in the old days under Jim Crow, we, not we the Republicans, but actually was Democrats, always was Democrats, perverted the fair election process by denying one group of people their legitimate franchise by taking away from black voters. What we now see, what I'm calling John Vulture, is that they're stealing and swiping elections by violating some of the most core 
principles in voting. Give you an example. There are states like here in California where I'm based that have voter harvesting. And what vote harvesting means is that on the one hand, the state goes and sends unsolicited mail ballots to people who otherwise, they don't know what's going on. We have a lot of people, for example, who don't even speak English here in California, a lot of uh, people from South America, Latin America. Uh, and know what happens is you get college kids who, you know, idealistic college kids on the left, they go to people's homes, they say, do you need some help voting? I'll help you vote. And they basically fill it in. Then they tell it to the person, you know, you just have to sign here. And if you can't sign, just make an X. And then don't worry about it. I'll cast your vote for you. So you've got somebody who doesn't know what's going on, letting the college kid basically fill out the form. The college kid takes it after the person fills it out. And if the college kid successfully convinced the person to fill in Democrat ballot boxes, so then they submit like a whole dump of them. And if it turns out that the person said, no, 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 I like Trump, I like Trump. So the college kid takes the ballot and throws it in the garbage, never puts it in. And you have real vote harvesting uh, in some states. It's a, it's a corruption. It's a horrible thing. And it's part of the system of which Democrats have actually figured out ways to increase their voter turnout in order to overcome the Republicans' success with established voters who actually have skin in the game. So if people like you and I pay income taxes, and it really matters to us because what ends up getting decided in Washington hits us directly in terms of what we're going to have to pay. Democrats decide, well, we're losing those voters, the ones with the skin in the game. Let's see if we can find new voters. Hey, hey, let's lower the voting age to 18. Let's bring in a bunch of high school seniors who don't know what's flying. Go ahead and have a conversation with a teenager about economics, about the American constitutional system or federalism. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't, I, I teach law school. I teach the smartest kids out of high school three, four years, five years later when they get to law school. And and I could tell you firsthand after 16 years, they don't know how the system works at all. I have to teach mm. it to them. Well, so do most of the, now, that, that's also the case with most members of Congress, unfortunately. Rabbi Duff Fisher, high stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. Rabbi, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. I know it's uh, about what you can prove and how fast you can prove it when it comes to allegations of voter fraud, but certainly it helps when you have guerrilla media operators like James O'Keefe getting whistleblowers to come forward and provide concrete examples perhaps provides a roadmap for more concrete examples and adds up to something material. Uh, we uh, played yesterday James O'Keefe's interview with a postal worker from Traverse City, Michigan, about ballots being collected and backdated so they could be counted in Michigan. Well, he's got another postal whistleblower. This time he's out of Erie, Pennsylvania. The same issue, backdating. I work at the post office in Erie, PA. Tell us what happened this morning, November the 5th. This morning, I was casing my route, and I saw the postmaster pull one of our supervisors to the side. And uh, as he was pulling the supervisor, it was, and it was really close to where my minor uh, case was, so I was able to hear him listen in. And I heard him say to the supervisor that they messed up yesterday. But they, and I was, so I was like, oh, what did they mess up on? And uh, he told the, the supervisor that um, they had uh, postmarked one of the pallets. The fourth, and then the third, 
because they were supposed to hit uh, put them for third. Why was he upset? Because, uh, because well, he's not honest to God. He's actually a Trump hater. But uh, he, because they were wanted, because uh, it may have came from Pittsburgh. I don't know the whole details because I'm not a supervisor. All these ballots that are coming in today, tomorrow, yesterday, are all supposed to be postmarked with her. Do you believe that order still stands? Yes. I no doubt, considering that they still want us to pick up uh, ballots tomorrow. They had a specific meeting, a safety meeting, where one of the, uh, where one of the, the higher-ups, Rob and Stephanie, basically told us to make sure we pick up the ballots and give them directly to the supervisor. Rob, the postmaster? Yes. And, and, uh, and you're telling me that they're still asking people to pick up ballots tomorrow, November 6th? Yes. And the picking up the ballots on November 6th isn't uh, the issue. The issue is, uh, with, and backdating, providing a postmark or backdating the postmark so that they can be counted illicitly. That's the issue. Uh, interestingly, O'Keefe was able to actually get the supervisor that was mentioned. Rob Weisenbach is his name. And uh, that's how this kind. Con- uh, this is how that conversation went. Brief as it was. There's a whistleblower inside your office that says that you uh, have been ordering employees to backdate ballots to November third from November fourth and fifth. Yeah, that's untrue, and I don't talk to reporters. Thank you. Okay, but um, he's. We've had multiple sources say that this is happening. He hung up the phone on me. Click. Right, of course. Um, so, uh, you know, the two different uh, postal whistleblowers, uh, two different jurisdictions with the same story. It's an allegation that deserves inquiry. Uh, maybe it levels up to the postmaster general and uh, Joy looks into this. Uh, if if nothing else, if the Department of Justice, the FBI, if uh, local election authorities don't want to look into it. And if they don't and if you don't get responses, if you don't get answers, sort of as we were talking about with Michael Anton at the top of the hour, then what does that say? Is that dangerous? Does that undermine our democracy? This is Dan Proctor. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're picking up on uh, some of the other comments President Trump made at his uh, press briefing on Thursday evening. Uh, the challenge to Joe Biden is very interesting. This uh Every legal ballot, all legal ballots should be counted, legal versus just ballots. This, this seems to be a recurring distinction between the two parties, legal immigrants versus immigrants, legal ballots versus just ballots. I challenge Joe and every Democrat to clarify that they only want legal votes because they talk about votes, and I think they should use the word legal, legal votes. We want every legal vote counted, and I want every legal vote counted. We want openness and transparency, no secret count rooms, no mystery ballots, no illegal votes being cast after Election Day. We think there's going to be a lot of litigation because we have so much evidence, so much proof, and it's going to end up perhaps at the highest court in the land. We'll see. But we think there'll be a lot of litigation because we can't have an election stolen like, like this. 
For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Mill. He's a Kansas City, Missouri attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law. Contributor to the Federalist, Am Greatness, American Greatness, amgreatness.com, and the Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Dan, and thank you for everything you do. Uh, appreciate it. Um, the uh, legal versus uh, no mention of legal or, or illegal, no no distinction between those two. So that uh, theme that we've seen play out in so many other quarters over the last four years now enters the uh, election count. Yeah, I think that, I mean, first of all, I want to be very careful about uh, making allegations of you know, voter fraud when, uh, you know, I don't I don't personally have possession of the evidence. I spent three years writing about the Russia collusion hoax and, you know, basically condemning Democrats for trying to undermine the legitimacy of an election when, you know, they didn't have the evidence. And I just want to be careful not to do the same thing. But I will make this observation, which is I've had this piece I just submitted to American Greatness, which is this idea that uh, the, the, the Biden campaign and the Democrats generally have been working on this kind of public relations campaign to delegitimize the Electoral College. And I think we're seeing the chickens coming home to roost on that now. And what I mean by that is that the um, uh, the Democrats have, you know, they have this idea of this uh, interstate compact that they're going to overturn the will of voters uh, if the individual states fail to conform to what the overall popular vote uh, came up with for a president. And of course, Biden, one of the first things he announced after um, the election day was over was that he won the popular vote. And then, you know, all the newspapers started emphasizing that, that he won the majority of the vote. So what they've, you know, and there are all these articles on the New York Times, the Washington Post, talking about how awful the, the electoral college is, how it's a relic of slavery, blah, 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 blah. Now, cut to back to the individual uh, the individual cities where there is these you know kind of shenanigans going on, and clearly we can see from the outside that that, that transparency has been reduced. That these they've been taping up cardboard to uh, prevent people from seeing into these rooms. They've been blocking Republican uh, uh, observers from from watching the vote count. And I think that when you look at what they've been doing to undermine the Electoral College vote, the people who are doing these kinds of things, I think, feel a certain moral legitimacy uh, if what they're doing is basically bringing the Electoral College result in line with the popular vote. They don't, sure. I think they feel I think they feel like there's nothing wrong with that means they're, they're not cheating. Well, this this is all I mean, this is also sort of part and parcel of our of our culture. And it, it is just replete in the political discourse that the ends justify the means. This is how things should be. So any way that we that decide to take to get there is legitimate. Right. And uh, and I think that uh, what's going to happen is it's kind of like what seemed to be happening in Florida 20 years ago, that all these counts, they keep slowing down and keep, you know, new things keep developing. And then the music stops when Biden wins. Right. Like it, we'll know when this election is over, because. Um, because the New York Times and uh, Fox News and all the other uh, major media will be able to project Joe Biden the winner. And whether or not there are any votes that are uncounted, none of that will matter. You know, that's 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 what's going to happen. And, well, and it's dragging on now to get to that point. Well, and, and just with respect to um, um, the uh, assertions of fraud, um, we you, you just mentioned an example uh, that uh, uh, poll watchers not being allowed to watch the count that the election law in places like Pennsylvania provides for. Thus, a court had to step in and say, yes, they can be six feet away and watch the count. Um, So people who are preventing that, that's a form of fraud. That's violation of the law. We have uh, reports of 
disparate treatment of defective mail-in ballots. Some uh, county officials calling people who filled out a mail-in ballot incorrectly such that it would be spoiled and telling them to come in if they want to correct it, which is a violation of Pennsylvania state law, for example. And it also implicates it also implicates an equal protection case that uh, should level its way up to the Supreme Court if the Trump campaign is interested in pursuing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to join you in, in saying that voting irregularities are, are equivalent to voting fraud. Voting irregularities facilitate fraud, but we don't like until we see ballots actually getting changed or ballots that were filed after the well, election day or ballots that were filed by people who didn't, you know, whose names were not on the on the ballot themselves. Um, you know, I think I think that we're in a climate where fraud is made more easy and more more possible. But I don't I, I'm just not there yet where I want to say that there's widespread fraud yet. Well, no, I'm not uh, saying I'm not saying widespread fraud. I'm saying these are instances of illegal actions. So, I mean, if you want to term them, if you want to put that under the umbrella of voter fraud, sort of from a, um, a, a layman perspective rather than a technical legal term. Um, or not. OK, fine. But there are violations of the law. There's this there's what is being reported as having been done and what we know was done. Uh, thus, the court needed to intercede on the matter of poll watchers. And then there's what Pennsylvania black letter election law says. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you're you're right. There's definitely irregularities that are undermining um, people's confidence in this in this election. Uh, I mean, and, and let's just say that Biden is winning this legitimately, just for the sake of, you know, yeah, sure. for this discussion, the next point. Uh, they're really shooting themselves in the foot because they're they're um, creating all kinds of opportunities for the Republicans and Trump and lawyers to say, you know, look, they're hiding what they're doing from us. And, it, you know, look, what, there's a common theme of, you know, where are these cities where these allegations are happening? Philadelphia, Detroit. I mean, what all these cities have in common. Right. They're right. being run by by Democrats. And so. The, the suspicion is already up anyway because these are one-party rural cities, uh, so they're, they're not helping uh, legitimize the result if, in fact, you know, he is on his way to winning a legitimate uh, electoral college victory, which that, that's in dispute. He, you know, it's, we, we will never know because of all the lack of transparency. Well, right, and also, I mean, like you were talking about, that the case they made to undermine the electoral college uh, encourages people to take license. Well— the case they make that voter fraud is a myth, that it it doesn't actually exist in, you know, just flying in the face of, I don't know, look at the 1500 cases in the, the Heritage Foundation database. Uh, let's talk about story cases from American history, the 1960 election for Kennedy and the Chicago machine, or frankly, uh, the 1982 governor's race in Illinois that I talked about on the show yesterday that produced 63 convictions on federal voter fraud charges. I mean, that those things actually did happen. And yet we have people today saying uh, that it doesn't exist or it's part of a bygone era. And that's just not credible. Well, we live in this kind of Soviet era in which, uh, you know, central censors can uh, take out their erasers and erase things from happening in history. I mean, that's that's almost what big tech, the power that big tech has come to. And I guess this is kind of a warning. Like, we'll look back. Historians will look back on the decade, the two decades between 2000 and 2020 as you know, freedom isn't free or, or, or free. You know, we get we get to uh, give up our freedom in exchange for free. Like, you know, Twitter, Facebook, all this stuff on the Internet was free. And so, you know, we relied on it and they crowded out legitimate newspapers. The even the legitimate newspapers that used to exist, they aren't legitimate news outlets anymore. 
uh, because they're all dependent on the, the big tech model. They all get their money from you know the clicks that Google uh, gets to shepherd. And so now after two decades of not paying for anything, we don't like own our own media anymore. Our media works for not the consumers, the people who consume the news, but for you know the interests that own it, influence it, put money into it. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's now possible to erase history and make it just like it didn't happen, like those, those uh, examples you were giving. Yeah, and in fact, uh, uh, individuals uh, interested in erasing history in the, from the right direction get uh, bankrolled by the New York Times and the Pulitzer Foundation these days. Uh, it, when we come back with Adam Mill, I want to continue this conversation about what is, quote-unquote, dangerous and what is not dangerous, and if we don't have those uh, descriptors uh, uh, misplaced with respect to the true dangers to a free society. More with Adam Mill. He is a Kansas City, Missouri attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law, a contributor to the Federalist, American Greatness, and the Daily Caller. We'll be right back. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show in his uh, remarks last night president trump uh, took up the issue of a uh, polling uh, we've talked about it uh, this week. We've talked about it all campaign cycle. Of course, uh, President Trump talking about suppression polls. These really phony polls, I have to call them phony polls, fake polls, were designed to keep our voters at home, create the illusion of momentum for Mr. Biden and diminish Republicans' ability to raise funds. They were what's called suppression polls. Everyone knows that now. And uh, it's never been used to the extent that it's been used in this last election. So it's dangerous to assert voter fraud that destabilizes democracy, we're told. It is not dangerous, not dangerous to dismiss credible allegations of illegality. Uh, for more on this and what is dangerous and what is not dangerous, please to be rejoined by Adam Mill, Kansas City, Missouri attorney specializing in labor, employment and public administration law. He is a contributor to The Federalist, American Greatness, and The Daily Caller. And, Adam, uh, it's uh, we were talking about just before the break about uh, the media, about uh, polling, uh, about big tech, and what is dangerous and what is not dangerous in America, you know, dangerous to undermine in terms of undermining our democracy. And I, I wonder what your reaction is to the combination of the press outlets and then the pollsters they retain for the purposes of, it seems, providing them the data they desire to uh, datafy the outcomes that they want, to push the outcomes they want through, you know, data, everybody being men and women of science and data these days. Yeah, I think we can safely uh, say now that um, these pollsters are frauds. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're hucksters, they're con men. Um, and I mean, I did a piece right after the election, uh, you know, right before the election, uh, the, the polls were saying that Biden was up 5% in Florida. He was up six points in North Carolina, 12 points in Michigan, eight points in Wisconsin. Uh, Trump was underwater in Ohio. They were all lies. I mean, do, do we really, really think people changed their minds now? 
Uh, you know, they're saying that people locked in their opinions to the 95%, maybe even 97% rate uh, before the last polling was done in the election. So nobody changed their mind. Um, it was just, yeah, the, these polls were, were, you know, they were lies. And, you know, to your point, a free and fair election under international standards, it's not just one thing. It's not just, you know, was the ballot kept secret or were the, was the counting done with integrity? I mean, it's those things, but it's, it's a basket of things. There's a basket of criteria. And I did a piece a, a while back uh, talking about, you know, do we meet international criteria for a free and fair election? And I came up with, you know, there were like five ways that we don't. And your point about the media colluding and censoring and suppressing data and, and also the more troubling thing, even even worse than that, is that they all say the same thing. You can read the same story in The New York Times that uh, you know CNN will broadcast that same day. It'll be the same angle. A lot of times it'll use the same vocabulary. Uh, it's just this kind of Soviet feel to it. It's like you know Tas and Pravda. You know they don't they aren't independent uh, news outlets. They're both saying basically the same thing. They just pretend to be different outlets, and that undermines elections. And then when you're censoring the president, you're censoring members of the um, of the administration. Uh, when you're you know putting out these polls, which are you know, obviously wrong. They're lies. They all err in the same same direction. You start taking things out of that basket of you know the criteria that makes something free and fair. You take you take these things one one out uh, one after the other out. And I I just am not sure that this last election that we had in 2020 would meet international standards. If we yeah, were to send it, election of. It, it, no, it's interesting you say that because I think this is what people are talking about. People like uh, Georgia State Representative Vernon Jones, who is at a Trump uh, campaign event update in Atlanta yesterday. He's Democrat supporting President Trump. Listen to what he said. But my point is, America, my point is Georgia, that we believe in the process. But this process has been tainted. And if you taint it for one party, you taint it for the other party. If you taint it for one American, then you taint it for all Americans. And we're not going to stand for this. And so I want to say to the press, so you can get the word out right now, um, this is my last point. We ain't bullshit. Yeah, it, you know, I believe in the process as uh, laid out uh, theoretically, but the process in terms of uh, how it operates functionally is tainted, is what uh, Representative Jones is saying. Uh, wow. I mean, that's just really great to hear people calling out um, the election. I mean, Trump. In this latest election, Trump uh, really posted some very impressive numbers among uh, African Americans, among Hispanics. I think that that's one of the biggest silver linings is that um, you know several minorities in this country have come out in force to repudiate this. Trump is a racist. Uh, Republicans are a racist. And I mean, I think we can be so grateful that uh, that they have uh, given the president support, given uh, the Republican Party support, that they've. They're questioning and challenging uh, the Democratic hegemony when it comes to minorities. And that's, a, you know, and then and then for them to take a chance and vote on a Republican president and have this kind of close election, uh, you know, with these shenanigans, I think that you're probably making a lot of Republican voters for life out of these, you know, traditionally Democrats that have tr crossed party lines to vote for Trump. Uh, they're going to be furious. And you could hear it in that clip uh, in his voice. He's furious. Um, and, it's not fair. And, and, and you know, uh, you're a, a practicing attorney. Um, I, I, I just have a lot of questions about 
the foreseeability of this. And so what did the campaign do? And that's a political question in terms of ballot security and preparedness and staffing for poll watchers and so forth. But there's also what did the Department of Justice do? Because Bill Barr yeah. spoke about uh, this uh, push for a vote by mail election and how it opens up the possibility of fraud. This has been found by previous commissions that looked at voter fraud. He referenced the Jimmy uh, Carter Commission. And um, and it's just unclear what the Department of Justice did in preparation and what it's doing now. Well, I, I think traditionally the Department of Justice uh, uh, is is concerned about seeming to federalize state level elections and getting, you know, getting involved in directing it unless there's, you know, a, a strong federal interest. And just simple cheating is not necessarily what the DOJ is going to get involved in. They're looking for racial discrimination or um, where the, the, the literally one ballot is being treated differently than another one, not in practice, but that's the official policy. Right. So I don't really look for the DOJ to get involved at all. I don't. I, I think that the federal judges are going to stay as far away from this as possible. Uh, it, Trump needs to win his fights on state ballot uh, procedures and state ballots in the state courts if he can, um, in, in the state supreme courts, and, and you know, and then in the next election. We really need to keep our eye on the state legislatures and seek, you know, ballot security revisions through the state legislatures. I don't I don't know that we're going to get there federally. Um, and I don't know that we want, you know, once we set a precedent for federalizing election procedure, then you're going to get ballot harvesting. You're going to get I mean, all these proceed, these these wish lists that the Democrats want. Um, they're they're going to try and get a pass at the federal level. And if they ever gain both chambers of Congress, they will they will pursue that with vigor. He is Adam Mill, Kansas City, Missouri-based attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law. Contributor to The Federalist, American Greatness, and The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Have a great day. You too. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Despite uh, the fact that uh, he is treated as the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan by the D.C. press corps and all the uh, assembled coalition partners on the left for the last four years. President Trump did better with minority voters than any GOP candidate in 60 years. His percentage of the black vote uh, rivaling uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower's in his first uh, run. Uh, He increased by a few percentage points, both his uh, percentage of the black vote as well as the uh, Hispanic vote. Not as much as some had hoped, but nonetheless, a important increment, directionally important as well, and also setting the stage for continued overtures to be made regardless of outcome in the presidential election because they did bear fruit. The president's explicit overtures combined with the record that he amassed in support of the interests of black Americans and Latino Americans. For uh, more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Mike Gonzalez. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, author of The Plot to Change America, how Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. Mike, thanks for being with us. Hello. Very happy to be on with you. Uh, it is completely true. Listen, I was a journalist for uh, close to 20 years all over the world, but the journalists, uh, the, the, the press has ended up with a substantial egg on its face 
after the way they treated uh, Donald Trump, and uh, they say we have seen these results, I would suggest, and we can get into it later if you want, that we, to use the great expression from the woke left, that we decolonize our minds and think less in terms of minorities or in terms of the Hispanic vote and look more granularly at what happened with the Cuban vote in Miami, Cuban-Americans, Puerto Rican votes in Central Florida, or even much more importantly, the very important Mexican-American vote in the Rio Grande Valley. The RGV is the heartland of the Mexican-American vote in Texas. If we think of the Latino quote-unquote vote, then we mix in California and Arizona, and we really miss the, the woods for the trees. Talk about that a little bit, because uh, some of the movements that you uh, memorialize in your column in the Wall Street Journal in Texas, in um, some of the upsets, too, in places like Florida, where you had a Cuban-American take out Donna Shalala, which was uh, unexpected, that uh, that a putty-faced communist molester of dogs, as P.J. O'Rourke famously called Donna Shalala, would lose— and also uh, in Florida, too, Miami-Dade, uh, the margin of error. I mean, significant movements in some of these areas around the country for Trump. Yeah, and, and for different reasons, too, which is why it's important to look at it granularly. The Cuban-American vote has always been very conservative. I can tell you I'm a Cuban-American. You know, Thanksgiving in my house is a conservative fest. But it went 70 to 30 for Trump. That's a 40-point margin. Ronald Reagan, who was beloved of Cubans, never got this level. So this is huge. And what did happen because of the fear of socialism? And that fear was not disinformation. That was a very real fear. If you look at the Black Lives Matters organizations, the leaders of them, they're Marxists. They say they're Marxists. Cuban Americans know this. The Puerto Rican vote in Central Florida, very, very important. They helped Governor DeSantis and Rick Scott, Senator Rick Scott in 2018. It really is very different in Central Florida from the Puerto Rican vote in Chicago or New York or Hartford or Philadelphia. And then the, lastly, and, and, and just, let, let me just interrupt you for a second there, too, because this is an important point that I try to emphasize. It's not emphasized enough. Political culture matters. And right. so a Puerto Rican in Florida is in a different political culture than a Puerto Rican in Chicago, just as a white guy in Chicago is in a different political culture than a white guy in Naples. And I'm both of those white guys, by the way. This needs to be emphasized because it speaks to commonality and it speaks to sort of the 50 laboratories of democracy, and it speaks to people making a choice to live in an environment that is more or less free, and that transcends race. You're completely right. The Irish-American vote in Texas is conservative, is Republican. The Irish-American vote in Boston is not. It's very democratic. You're absolutely right. Demographers look at this. People who immigrate kind of absorb the mores of the places they go to. The Cuban vote in New Jersey is very different from the Cuban vote in South Florida. So I think it's important. But let's go back to the Rio Grande Valley, though, because that is a cultural thing. That is a place that, it, even though it's poorer than the rest of the country, has a higher homeowning rate than the rest of the country. There's no other place in the U.S. like this. All these counties are 95% plus Mexican-American, right? El Pato is, 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 by comparison, not Mexican-American at all because it's only 85% Mexican-American. So the fact that Trump outperformed his 2016 uh, result by 50 points, he actually won Zapata County. It's incredible. It talks about the attraction that conservatism has for people, and they don't see themselves as minorities. They, see, they, they, are, they aspire they want to be, they're, they, they, they're the mainstream. They see themselves as Texans uh, first, probably Americans second, and yeah, right. and then conservatives right. maybe third. But yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> 100%. You got it. Yeah, they're, they're Texans. 
When we come back with uh, Heritage Foundation's Mike Gonzalez, uh, more conversation about the repudiation of identitarian politics and uh, some examples of uh, upset elections that speak at least in part to that as well on the House side. Mike Gonzalez rejoins us when we return. Oh, no, we're going to rock down to Electric Avenue. Listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with the Heritage Foundation's Mike Gonzalez before the break, discussing identity politics. Uh, one of the big losers on election night, arguably. And to the extent there was a repudiation of policies. Uh, and not just personality, it was uh, in the direction uh, in favor of Republicans, uh, for example, in New Mexico. Uh, the Democrat governor there rebuked Joe Biden after the final debate when he talked about uh, transitioning out of uh, oil and gas because um, that, that would decimate the energy sector in New Mexico. And there was a flip in a congressional seat in New Mexico on that issue as well. Yeah, and what we're seeing, the Washington Post has a good story today on this, 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 this huge infight that has broken out inside the House Democratic Party with some of the more moderate members saying, and they're on tape saying that we should never use the word socialism ever again because the House, Pelosi lost seats. This is not a blue wave. They have lost at least five seats. They, in South Florida, they got wiped out. Shalala, Marchese, all of them got wiped out. So it's the opposite of what they expected. It, they really did believe that Biden led by 17 points in Wisconsin. They believed that. Uh, on the uh, identitarian uh, laws front, too, um, this is, of course, going to be a lightly reported story from the D.C. press corps and its outposts around the country, perhaps even in California. But the effort to overturn Prop 209, which bans race-based policies for hiring in state institutions, uh, admission in public uh, universities, that went down by 12 points, 1.4 million votes spread. I mean, that got crushed in a state, you would think, as one of the base camps of identitarian politics. Several things here. It went down to a huge defeat. Prop 16 was rejected by a larger margin than Prop 209 was adopted in the People's Republic of California. Mm -hmm. It was led by Chinese-American parents, most of whom are immigrants. Right, so if you look at the Chinese-American component of America, over 90% are either born in China or their parents were born in China. I know these people. I speak to them. They're new to America. They're incredibly savvy. They understood. They, they take their civic duty, and they're fighting for their children because the racial preferences are now aimed at them, right? However, they have to fight also their so-called affinity organizations, like Chinese for Affirmative Action, like Asian Americans Advancing Justice. These organizations are more attuned with the white donor class, which is far left, than they are with these immigrants. They're not fighting for these immigrants. So these immigrants did this all by themselves. More power to them, and they're doing it in Boston. And what this means is that this might inform, we know that racial preferences are going to go to the Supreme Court again, right? We know that this is going to keep coming back until we finally apply the Constitution. I think with the Supreme Court as it's constituted now, unless Democrats manage to pack the Supreme Court, the affirmative action, which is really should be called racial preferences, it does not have a, a long life ahead of, of itself, you know, I don't think. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because uh, as much as the left has banked on identitarian politics, and even if uh, Joe Biden is victorious, 
it really potentially is their undoing. I think some of the reason that uh, Trump closed in the final weeks, including, you know, the quality of the campaign and the rallies and so forth. But what but what is the basis of those rallies? What brings people out? What brings people out in part are economic issues, but in part cultural issues. And they don't want to live in this oppressive culture where um, I am only my identity, my race, my my skin color, my gender uh, my orientation. That's all I am. And that's essentially what how the left treats me. And to the extent I run afoul of the orthodoxy of the identitarians, I can have, uh, you know, everything taken away from me. People don't want to live in that culture. And it seems like that's a real opportunity because it's going to be very, very difficult based on exactly what you were just describing, the attitudes of the donor class and where the energy is in the Democrat Socialist Party, it's going to be very interest, uh, very difficult for them to walk away from that. So that that seems to be a pitched battle going forward. Because people ask me all the time, how come I remain optimistic in spite of everything that, that, everything that has taken place? What I say to them is that I have lived all over the world, right? As a journalist, I've lived in seven countries at least a year. I have never seen a people more attached to liberty than Americans. People have written about this for 200 years, especially foreigners, because they're able to compare and contrast. Americans are attached to liberty. They don't take to cancel culture very well. This is an out-of-body experience for most Americans. The thing is, the woke, who accounts for like 9% of the country, by the way, but they're deeply entrenched in the media, the academy, and, and the entertainment industry, the woke do not understand Americans. They don't understand this attachment to liberty. Yeah, it's and, and right. You're right. It's outsized because uh, the woke are in positions of power. So it's 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 you know, so it's it's very much uh, distorts things, just like uh, the cover, the coverage of COVID-19. What, what did what do people say in surveys? They think that the uh, death rate for people who uh, get infected with COVID is like nine percent when it's, you know, point oh two percent. And why do they think the death rate is is exponentially higher than it actually is? Because that's what the media obsesses upon, so it distorts your understanding of the world around you. And, they, and it did it on purpose. It did it on purpose to hurt Donald Trump. Let me tell you, Donald Trump is not in charge of Spain. Donald Trump is not in charge of Italy or the U.K. These countries are heading into – they are heading into a long, dark winter. I don't think we are. So I think, you know, all of this was political, by the way. All of this was, was malice aforethought. The, the one the one thing that uh, I mean, among many things that sad me if President Trump is not victorious is uh, how he champions school choice at the federal level. Now, the good news is school choice is largely state and local issues because K through 12 education is so people in, in the various states can still advance the flag on that cause. But that is such a, a, a game changer for. Uh, forget even political support for minority families, the quality of education that minority families and poorer families can access for their kids in this country. And uh, one would hope that that is uh, that continues to be something that's important at the state and local level that's pushed by conservatives, that's pushed by Republican governors and Republican controlled legislatures, uh, even if they don't have Trump supporting it over the top. Listen, the, 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 the one big story that the media will not report, but it's, it's ongoing below the surface, is what COVID has done to America's parents. I live in a very liberal part of the world. I can tell you the, 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 the mothers and fathers here, especially the mothers, are incandescent with the teachers' unions. They've, underst- they've understood what the teachers' unions have done to their children. What we're seeing, this is a rolling insurgency that people do not know it unless you go to parties, unless you attend PTA meetings. People have had it to their back teeth with the teachers' unions. But we're going to see a very different educational environment 
in two or three years. That's my prediction. Mike Gonzalez, Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, author of The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. The podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show, continuing uh, to discuss some of the uh, demographic breakdowns of the electorate with respect to uh, Biden versus Trump based on exit polling. Good piece from Alexander Santos in National Review. The left doesn't understand women. And again, the uh, treatment by the identitarians of women as monolithic in discussions of this sort. And then, of course, the dismissal of women who are conservatives. And the same, you know, goes for particular minority groups and so forth. Right. This is about ideological alignment. It is not about uh, an individual interest or even group interests group affiliations. Uh, So it turns out, uh, as is uh, routinely the case, that there's very different attitudes and thus very different uh, choices made by married women versus single women. That was the case in this election as well. Also, with respect to married men, 53 percent of married men who accounted for a little less than a third of all voters supported Trump, 46 Biden. So Trump wins married men, 53, 46 unmarried men favored, uh, who also account for, uh, who account for about uh, one-fifth of the electorate. Married men, about a third of the electorate. Uh, single men, about a fifth of the electorate. They favored Biden, unmarried men, 50 to 44 over Trump. The disparity between married and un- unmarried women? Married women and unmarried women each account for about a quarter of those who voted in the election. Married women broke hard for Trump, 55% backing Trump to 42% for Biden. And then unmarried women? 62 Biden to 37 Trump. So there is um, a 15 point spread married men to unmarried men, a 38 point swing married women versus single women. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. What does that say? What do you think that says about um, marriage, about family and how that informs your political affiliation, how it informs how you think about the world? And uh, perhaps this question, who is uh, more uh, forward looking, who is inclined to be um, more of a conservator of American principles, the married mom and dad who have future generations to consider or the unmarried woman or man? Not that you can't be a single parent, but generally speaking, you know what I'm saying? DeSantis suggests a few reasons why married women were uh, more likely to vote for Trump as opposed to their single cohorts. Uh, one is school options. Uh, Trump administration's pr- promotion of school choice, uh, ability to get uh, the pr- promotion of putting the kids back into school could be. Uh, also, uh, the treatment of Amy Coney Barrett from the left, particularly the commentary targeting her motherhood, using her children, adoptive children against her, or calling into question the legitimacy of her adoptions may have encouraged some married women to go. Um, But um, there's a huge subset of women in this country, married women, uh, who are dismissed by the left and uh, 
never distinguished when the conversation turns to women's issues or women's interests in the country. And perhaps that requires a little bit more thinking about uh, why it is that married people in this country, men and women, have such different voting habits than unmarried people. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Jason Whitlock, Outkick.com, on with Tucker Carlson last night, had an interesting perspective on the election. I hadn't quite thought about it this way, but um, I like the way that he framed this. Uh, Take a listen. Yeah, I think this 2020 election is a parable about the power of love versus the power of hate. And I think, and again, I'm not talking about Donald Trump and Joe Biden and specifically, they're not the parable of love and hate. I'm talking about their supporters. And Donald Trump's support is coming from people who love Donald Trump, who unconditionally love Donald Trump, to the point that they will risk their health and go maskless to rallies of thousands of people. They'll risk their reputation to be accused of being racist and sexist. They'll risk their safety in terms of being attacked by Antifa or Black Lives Matter. They love Donald Trump. Biden supporters hate Donald Trump. That is their energy source. It has nothing to do with Joe Biden. And so this is about, can you take hate and turn that into something that's a winning formula for you? Is hate a more powerful motivation for a base of supporters, and is that how we're going to be deciding elections and deciding who we support? Can we rally enough hate of the opponent to win an election? I think it's a a sad statement about where we are uh, in this society as it relates to politics. I think it's a sad statement on where we are in terms of our relationship. This was a country founded on Judeo-Christian values, and we are moving completely away from that. God is the embodiment of love, and we're a society that seems to be embracing and favoring hate and empowering hate. Yeah, I think that's uh, right on the mark. Uh, And uh, as examples of what Jason Whitlock is talking about, you know, that that Joe Biden was just somebody who had to fill a ballot spot. Uh, Charles Blow, writing in The New York Times, is very disappointed about uh, his fellow black men in America noting that uh, in 2008, 5% of black men voted for McCain. In 2012, 11% voted for Mitt Romney. 13% voted for Trump in 2016. And this time, according to exit polling, 18% of black men voted for Trump. Overall, it was about 12% of black Americans because it was obviously a much smaller percentage of black women. But 18% voted for Trump, uh, Charles Blow said of that number, personally devastating to me. It's devastating to him that nearly one in five black Americans may disagree with him on on a presidential choice. And you you want to tell me that uh, Jason Whitlock isn't right. And even more importantly, beyond President Trump, 
uh, right, love conquers all, but we're a, a country increasingly consumed by hate, certainly coming from the left. And how does that play itself out? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dominic Green. He is the Life and Arts Editor of The Spectator. Dominic, thanks for joining us. You and Molly Ball agree, and that's not something we get to say very much. Uh, Molly Ball writing over at uh, Time, I think it was, that uh, if Joe Biden, Joe Biden may win, but he's going to be governing in Trump's America. And that's sort of your takeaway, too, um, uh, in a piece that you wrote for The Spectator, um, that uh, uh, the uh, populism uh, that uh, Trump served was real cannot be wished away that trump has remade american politics because american politics are being remade by the voters and uh, trump's endurance uh, even in defeat if that's what comes to pass is testament to that well yes and, and i i'm personally devastated to find myself agreeing with molly ball yes um, i'm sure but... I, I i i'm sorry to have to report that to you <laughs> and yes. broke the news to me um it's true um, the great hope that the Democrats had, and this goes back to 2016, was that uh, Donald Trump's victory then was a misfiring of the machine, that this would never be permitted to happen again. And indeed, they're still doing their best to make sure that it doesn't. But these results, of course, are not the landslide, which is being widely predicted, um, if, if Biden wins. They actually show that this country remains deeply divided politically and the line is pretty clearly drawn and a very small swing here or there is enough to tip it one way or another. And the changes also that Donald Trump has forced in many ways upon the Republican Party's most prominent figures, these also aren't going to go away. So the broad lines of American politics have shifted, I think, permanently under Donald Trump. And it may be looked back on as one of his major achievements. Well, and, and something else, too. I, I mentioned this the other day, but uh, it bears repeating. Exit polling by NBC News. Uh, those who voted in the last week leading to, into Election Day 54 to 36 for Trump. So when he finally uh, sort of reestablished the Trump rallies and his closing argument, which was very similar to his closing argument in 2016, boy, he he moved numbers. It would have been a landslide his way if we didn't have six weeks of Election Day in America, plus obviously this uh, novel push for uh, almost completely vote by mail elections in blue states. That, but the, But the close is really telling to me that uh, uh, what you say is the case. And the Republican Party, if Trump is not reelected, would be loath to dismiss his loss and the people who support him as anything other than inextricable to their future success, meaning pulling that Trump uh, attitude and policy agenda forward. Yeah, I think there's two or three things to say to that. The first is certainly this, that if we're trying to get the economy going again, after the, the pandemic, then the last thing we need is a government which promises to raise taxes on everybody. I mean, that's just economic common sense. And I think uh, people understand perfectly well that the Biden administration in the making would be a disaster economically for anybody running a small business, for instance. And I think also you're right that Trump's finish is astonishing. It shows that once all that static and misinformation from the pollsters is taken out of the picture, there's actually a massive, very strong support for him. But there's something else which has happened, which, which is, which I think going forward from this, something must be done about, which is we have shifted from having an election on a day, as you're saying, to having a sort of rolling uh, election, which turns into a series of snapshots of how people have said to feel at a certain moment. 
It's not true yet to say that, well, you know, the core Democratic support votes weeks ahead by mail and core Republican support turns out on the day. But we are heading into that sort of picture, and it's, it's not a sensible way of doing it. Because obviously the vote's meaning may be changed. You know, there were people who voted before Amy Coney Barrett was onto to the Supreme Court. There are people who apparently are still voting afterwards, after the third. So this isn't helping anything. And in terms of love and hate and, and the, the violent passions which are becoming attached to this question of who won, running a long-term election over several weeks is the perfect recipe for, for dissension and violence because everyone is going to be slowly driven nuts by this. Even with Biden taking narrow leads in Pennsylvania and Georgia today, uh, this morning, do you have any uh, qualms with uh, President Trump's message last night and uh, the litigation that has been that is being pursued by the, the Trump campaign with respect to the count? Well, it's no surprise to us at this point that the president is a man of enormously strong feelings who sometimes might do better not to say anything. Um, what I do think is this, that for several years, the Democratic Party was able to run with this daft Russia conspiracy theory. And it took a very long time, only in recent weeks, really, for it to be completely disproven. If there are any questions about the probity of an election, whether it's the dog catcher, the president or whatever, then obviously there should be a careful recount. And that goes for any election in any place, because win or lose, the important thing is that the democratic system retains its credibility. So if there are doubts, absolutely anywhere, recount, absolutely fine. Because one of the things we have seen, and this is a positive, which I think gets lost in all the partisanship and the tension of the moment as well, we've seen an exercise in democracy as it should be done. Very high turnout, over 67, 68%. This is the sort of thing that we would hope for in any other election. You know, people have come out and voted because it matters to them. So the system should respect them and it should recount where necessary. And it might be a good idea if, if the president stepped back a little, simply because then the recount would be for everybody's benefit. It wouldn't just be a partisan question. Now, as the uh, life and arts editor of The Spectre I, uh, and a Brit, I feel uh, compelled to ask you this question. Get your reaction to Bentley, British manufacturer, Bentley announcing that uh, they're going to go all electric by 2030. Will you be turning in your Bentley for maybe an Aston Martin? I'm actually going to start stockpiling gasoline so that I can keep running my Bentley with the, uh, <laughs> the familiar purring of the engine that I'm used to every time I pop out to the store. Yeah, very yeah. good. Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor of The Spectator. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to continue on the conversation we started with Dominic Green before the break, referencing the Jason Whitlock commentary on Tucker Carlson's show last night about this election being one of love versus hate and um, the fact that uh, hate perhaps has overcome love, as it were, what that says about where America is heading culturally. Uh, is this going to be a return to normalcy then? 
the hatred that approximately half the country had for President Trump, their basis to vote for Joe Biden, and their hatred of the half of the country that voted for Donald Trump, both in 16 and today. Hmm. I'm a bit of a skeptic on that score. I think Glenn Reynolds is as well. Writing in the New York Post, the left is again showing that it can't stand anyone who disagrees. He gives some particularly uh, salient examples of this. New Republic's Andrew Cohen. What do we do with all these Trump supporters? Uh, That's a question that could have some dangerous implications, uh, couldn't it? As Reynolds opines, learn to live with them and respect your differences. That is not one of the choices. Cohen writes that one of the most grievous, if underappreciated, wounds of the Trump era, the sad discovery for so many of us over the past four years, that so many of our friends, neighbors, business partners, and heroes are not who we thought they were. No one really has a good solution about how to strongly and honorably respond to a Trump supporter in our lives. Do we forgive and forget? Turn the other cheek after it's been slapped? This is, of course, uh, calls to mind uh, Don Lamone the uh, dumbest man on television over there on CNN who uh, got uh, attention this week for his latest snit in which he said he got rid of friends who supported Trump because they had gone too far. I challenged the assertion that Don Lamone uh, had friends, much less friends who supported Trump. But okay, listen to uh, Tom Nichols writing at The Atlantic. The voters who said in 2016 that they chose Trump because they thought he was just like them turned out to be right. And by the way, Tom Nichols refers to Trump as a sociopath. So that is not a compliment he intends. Now, by picking him again in 2020, those voters are showing that they are just like him. Angry, spoiled, racially resentful, aggrieved and willing to die rather than ever admit that they were wrong. It's clear now that far too many of Trump's voters don't care about policy, decency or saving our democracy. They care about power. Well, Nichols is right about one thing. Trump voters do care about power. They care about power over their own lives. They care about uh, power in advance of their own interests. They care about reestablishing the balance of power between the state and the individual. So, yes, it's a power relationship and uh, Trump supporters, voters. So that relationship has gotten out of whack and it needs to be reset. Uh, Rather than relying on Tom Nichols to uh, hold the power over me and act in my best interest. No, thank you, Mr. Nichols. I just assume retain most of that power to chart my course, come what may, accept the consequences for the choices that I make. If that's what he means by they care about power, everybody cares about power and should. You should care about having dominion over your life or care about not having dominion over your own life. But uh, you think this is an environment by which we're going to uh, return to normalcy because of the decency of forthcoming Biden administration with the majority in the House, control of big city America, and by extension, much of the big states with the big economies in America. Yeah, I don't think so. And uh, just in case you don't believe me, uh, let me uh, provide this offering from Michael Harriott over at TheRoot.com. Dear white America, you're welcome. Yeah, the splinters here are not just uh, in two piles. There are splinters all over the ground. Dear white people, all white people, I'd like you to note how I included that uh, three-letter modifier when I addressed talking to every single white person. And he goes on to uh, offer invective uh, the direction of uh, stereotypical categories of white people, the unsoaped leg Laura's and the bath cloth resistant Becky's. Those still lingering in flip flop season because you barbecued your Nikes and broke a strap on your Birkenstocks boogieing to Jimmy Buffett at the Blue Lives Matter rally. People with toes peeking out of car windows and wraparound sunglasses perched on their bills of their camouflage crimson tie caps, MAGA Maggie's and Bernie bro Bretts, the Kaepernick haters and the climate change deniers, the ones with an affection for the anthem and a fondness for the flags, the dog mouth kissers and the tree huggers, the proud boys and the hollaback girls, the soccer moms and NASCAR dads, 
top calling Karens and frat boy chads. Good. That's a summation of all white people, by the way. Going back to Jason Whitlock, love versus hate. You tell me. I'm talking to all the white people. Are you enjoying your legal marijuana? Like the stimulus check? Are you happy you could finally get health care with a pre-existing condition or that you could visit Planned Parenthood for your reproductive care? Were you worried about how your 23-year-old child would get health care before you realized you could just add him on your insurance plan? Is your water clean? Did you mail in your ballot? Black voters did that. You're welcome. We know you've been busy not wearing masks while the global pandemic stalks you like a reality host clawing a checkbook and fingers that smell slightly of Diet Coke and hydroxychloroquine. Or perhaps you're preoccupied with open enrollment season for health care, the health care you despise but wouldn't give up for all the pumpkin spice tea in China, which is why it's understandable that you can't take the time to thank us for saving you from yourselves. Don't bother. We're used to it. Black people did that. We saved you. We saved you. And by the way, this is all black people with some exceptions, like black people support Trump and all white people. But these aren't overgeneralizations, cartoonish in their nature. No, no. And this is coming from a place of love, clearly. In spite of your silence on white supremacy and support of an irrefutable white nationalist, we decided to put on our capes and pull you from the burning flames of the dumpster fire you built, lit and fueled with unrepentant racism disguised as patriotism. Still, we saved you. We're not here to condemn you, nor are we trolling for praise. Instead, we want to tell you why we paraded to the polls and did the right thing. We did it because you hate America. You hate America. You claim to love life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but to despise black lives, the right to choose, anything that makes people's lives easier. Is that the standard by which love of America? Easy lives? Hmm. And he goes on about how black people do it every time. We're the ones who made this land a democratic republic by putting our necks in nooses for the right of all people to participate in democracy. Yeah. Mr. Harriot is a particularly angry guy uh, with a particularly myopic view of the world. But uh, I say again, uh, this is uh, the pathway to a newfound comedy in the electorate. Yeah. Interestingly, just to confirm Whitlock's hypothesis, if you weren't already convinced, uh, this is Harriet writing. Black people do not love Joe Biden or the Democrat Party. We don't hate them, but it's not like we're waiting for a 77-year-old white man and his political party to pull out a sword and beat back 401 years of white people white peopling, because that's what white people do. They uh, enslave people. The reason black people are reliably Democratic is that black people vote for all of us. Not only do we vote with the collective benefit of this country in mind, we cajole, coerce, and convince other black people to do the same. Even the small percentage of black voters who support the GOP unquestionably know that the rest of black America thinks they're on some something meanwhile all white people vote according to their specific interests and beliefs all see isn't all black well black people except for those with the gop vote for all of us or the entire country meanwhile all white people he writes all vote according to their specific interests and beliefs all black people except those who vote republican are selfless all white people are selfish hmm in conclusion if black people can convince 90 percent of black people to put put on uh, pants or a bra, leave their homes in a global pandemic and consistently vote for a country that kicks them in the teeth and a party that doesn't break its neck to appease us, then white people can convince white people to stop being so gosh darn, not the word he used, racist. You're not trying hard enough. Yeah. I don't think uh, Michael Harriet is uh, particularly uh, interested in uh, building coalitions with people with whom he disagrees. And I don't think he's particularly persuaded by Joe Biden's... uh, canned unity messages out this week that you'll be hearing for the months and years to come, no doubt, if he is elected president of the United States. And so, again, it's a bigger cultural issue, a culture predicated and rooted in love or a culture predicated, rooted in hate. 
Jason Whitlock's America versus Michael Harriet's. In which do you want to live? This is Dan Fox. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, depending on the uh, outcome of the election, perhaps regardless of the outcome of the presidential election, the uh, accounting for Biden, Inc., and Hunter Biden's high-flying foreign deal-making, will that be a feature of any administration going forward? I think people are understandably skeptical. Will the media take an interest? I think that a lot of people are understandably skeptical. But it doesn't mean that it shouldn't continue to be pursued and documented to the extent that more Tony Bobolinskis come forward, more evidence is presented that calls into question Joe Biden's role in his family's business dealings that calls into questions the particulars of those business dealings and uh, the partners that uh, Hunter Biden and Jim Biden, Joe's brother, were engaging that uh, may lend one to have concerns about, for example, a president-elect Biden being a compromised president-elect. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Arthur Bloom. He's the editor of the American Conservative Online, previously deputy editor of the Daily Caller and a columnist for the Catholic Herald. Arthur, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, glad to be here. Before we get into uh, these uh, pieces that you've written about Hunter Biden's business dealings and some of the questions that you're raising, you know, your perspective on whether there is an interest level in the places where interest needs to exist, the media, law enforcement, uh, to uh, pursue this in any meaningful way. Um, you know, I, I actually think the answer is going to be yes. If Biden is declared the winner, there's going to be probably this. This stuff could be used very easily and very quickly to basically get him out of office. And all that would have to happen is for all of the big liberal papers and networks to decide that it is important now. That's pretty much all that it would take. I, I think that's maybe the big mistake by conservatives by focusing on the sex tapes. There's too much stuff here in this accounting that takes too long to plow through and turning it into stories that make sense to people takes a long time. And we turn this piece around pretty quick off of some of the materials, but there's more. And it just takes time to go through it. And it doesn't seem like that was really done. You're right. But look, there was obviously a lot of attention paid to what Tony Bobolinsky had to say in that interview that he did to Tucker Carlson, the evidence that he presented, the documents, the text messages. And again, pre-election, I I understand what you're saying. The press's attitude may change post-election on the basis of what? That we want to at least give the appearance that... uh, we're even handed, even though that it's not true now that our guy is across the finish line or we'd rather have President Harris than President Biden. What would be the press's perspective since they're just in the business of storytelling these days, not news reporting to pay attention to this? Well, I think they'd say the first one, but mean the second one, right? They'd say that we are taking these allegations very seriously, of course, after the election. But what they'd really want is their woke friend of big tech in there in the White House. 
Yeah, that seems uh, plausible. Let's uh, talk about a couple of the uh, areas of Hunter Biden's business ceilings that you've written about, that you've looked at and written about. And one that's I haven't seen virtually any discussion of this. The idea that um, Hunter Biden may have been involved in facilitating NBC Universal's Beijing theme park. And uh, here we're uh, reintroduced to uh, Eric Schwerin, who was a guy that was mentioned in in a voicemail that made its way around Tucker Carlson when he was openly complaining about subpoenas and investigations and uh, trying to protect his uh, single source of income at the time, Burisma. Yeah, that's right. I've written about this. I had a column back in, I guess, June or July about how when it comes to foreign influence at our major media institutions, I mean, the big fish here is China. The reason why that's so important is that most of the big conglomerates that own companies like NBC or CNN, they all do a significant amount of business in China and ABC, which, of course, is owned by Disney. Um, And so how exactly all of that happened? I mean, one of the ugliest and most likely to introduce conflicts of interest was this Beijing Universal Studios theme park. You know, basically that becomes sort of like a nice theme park, be a shame if something happened to it, sort of leverage that the Chinese basically have. It's an enormous investment, billions of dollars, that Universal has now gone in on. And so that puts them, to some extent, on the hook with the Chinese government. NBC, of course, is owned by Comcast. And we also found in some of my earlier reporting that Chinese consular officials were going to Philadelphia. They were meeting with Comcast executives. And they were saying, you know, we really hope you're fair when it comes to covering COVID. And, And I guess they've been happy with NBC's coverage thereafter. But what this email from Hunter Biden's hard drive shows, so I want to be clear, this email doesn't show that introductions were made. It does, however, show that Schwerin thought they could be made and should be made, and it was something that they were willing to do. That's all that this email says. It says that DITIC, which is a pretty big Chinese company, state-owned, they'd like an introduction to Universal because they'd like to open a Universal Studios China theme park outside of Beijing. As I said, that one should be easy via Melissa Maxfield slash David Cohen. Those are two Comcast executives. It looks like the onus was on China to kind of get this thing going. And it seems like that partnership, which did end up coming through, they did end up building the theme park, was coming through Hunter Biden's company. When we come back, I want to separate to sort of two categories of business ceilings. I want to get to some of those questions when we return with Arthur Bloom, the editor of the American Conservative Online. The more you'll know, this is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Arthur Bloom. He's the editor of the American Conservative Online. He's previously deputy editor of the Daily Caller and a columnist for the Catholic Herald. And before the break, we were talking about uh, his reporting on uh, this uh, article. Hunter Biden uh, involvement in a potential deal between uh, uh, Chinese state-owned enterprise CITC and NBC Universal for a, a Beijing theme park. And the point that you were making is all this, uh, Arthur, before the break, the point that you're making is, you no, know, all this indicates is, is inter- an interest level that China was reaching out and there was interest on behalf of Hunter. Nobody's alleging anything illegal and nobody's alleging anything uh, will be consummated. But it does speak to it. But it does speak to their perspective on who they're willing or even desirous of doing business with. And that implicates that has real geopolitical implications if your uh, father is the vice president of the United States or the president of the United States. 
That's exactly right. When it comes to a lot of this foreign dealing, I mean, a, a lot of it is legal, and that's kind of what's scandalous about it. Uh, you know, it's a political argument that I think is frankly quite effective that uh, the Biden family was selling out their country. And uh, this this demonstrates that it wasn't just sort of them siphoning off consulting fees, which is what the other story I did was about. But they were actually uh, seemed to have had a hand in arranging a business relationship that basically, uh, to some extent, gave China a huge amount of leverage over one of the largest media and Internet conglomerates in the country. And with respect to um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the this other piece that you did, how the Bidens made off with millions in Chinese cash, this goes through that uh, Senate intelligence report that was cobbled together by uh, Ron Johnson uh, and that uh, we should have sort of uh, given the back of the hand by the press corps, of course, because it was pre-election. But um, but uh, you, you dig into this a little bit more uh, to try and make more sense of it than perhaps uh, Rudy Giuliani was making before the election. That's right. And so uh, there are still some things that are a little bit murky from this material. But basically, so their partnership with uh, CEFC uh, started to kind of break down in 2000 and uh, late 2017. The, the uh, one of their employees was arrested and charged in the Southern District of New York. Uh, and, and then, then just the just German- just uh, just CEFC is the big uh, Chinese energy concern. Uh, just to you know, so we everybody's keeping track That's of this. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is a complicated story, so it's good to stop me if you have uh, anything I should clarify. Uh, And then uh, the chairman of the company was was arrested in China also, uh, and he's just disappeared. And so what you've got is at the end of 2017, uh, regulators are closing in. And so uh, Hunter Biden is doing business with a fairly small part of CEFC, uh, a a small company that's wholly owned by them. And between a partnership with that company and his own, Hudson West, uh, that that was how this all happened. And so when regulators closed in, both of those both of those sides of that deal had basically equal control. And so in order to keep it out of the hands of the regulators, Hunter Biden tried to basically get them to agree to take control of it. And that's not quite what happened. Uh, what we've got this new material in this piece uh, is exactly what deal happened thereafter, uh, which is that it, it, full control wasn't quite given to Hunter Biden, but. Uh, it, it was it was an equal uh, partnership between two uh, uh, CEFC employees in the United States and Hunter Biden. And then basically what happened to that uh, several million dollars, about five million dollars, it was just bled dry over the next couple of months. Within six months, it was all gone. And so all that money went out in, in a couple of consulting payments and then and then a few very, very big credit card bills. And it doesn't really seem like there was any legitimate business purpose for any of it. Well, and there was also what uh, Tony Bobolinsky suggested uh, occurred, which is that that Hunter Biden and he had text messages to the effect. Hunter Biden was serving as sort of the personal attorney of the chairman of this Chinese energy company, uh, despite having you know no experience uh, as a corporate attorney in that sector. And, uh, you know, and he talked about sort of doing other things for him, perhaps having to do with citizenship and or citizenship issues or things like that, uh, visa issues, things like that. Is there any more sense of, of why uh, that uh, – any more sense of, of that relationship? It's odd. I'm, we're going to do this business deal that involves um, other pl- players, but then I'm also going to serve as your personal attorney. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the, the next step of all of this, there's a lot of – there are a lot of business documents on that hard drive. I mean, we're not in the business of running sex tapes, but the uh, there is a lot of legitimate business-related concerns on that drive. And, and so information like text messages and several of these different companies with 
uh, kind of the transactions of Hudson West and all that. That's going to take a little more time to sort through. I think there's definitely more here. With respect to any potential criminal activity, again, uh, the, some of Hunter Biden's own words, he wanted to avoid having to register as a foreign agent. The uh, the law that uh, eventually was uh, uh, used to prosecute Paul Manafort, for example, violations of that law. Right. Um, and I mean, what what is that? Uh, how should we receive his uh, lack of a desire to have to register as a foreign agent and whether or not based on what he was doing, it would have been appropriate under the law for him to be compelled to register. Well, uh, the, the fact is the, uh, the foreign agents registration act is about the most unevenly enforced enforced law in Washington. Uh, it depends on which government you're working for, uh, whether or not, you know, it's, these things are going to be aggressively, uh, pursued. And also it depends on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, I, I don't think in that respect, you know, it, it may look corrupt, but it, it's probably not illegal. It's not illegal that he did not register. Right. I mean, I guess if you don't have to register, why would you register? Why would you be put on anybody's radar if you don't have to be put on anybody's radar? But why was he so concerned about it? Um, because he was doing business with Chinese aid and state-owned enterprises. And, uh, you know, if he was – the Foreign Agents Registration Act basically pertains to – you kind of publicly lobbying on behalf of something like that. And uh, it doesn't really seem like he was doing it. Maybe he was privately lobbying for some things, or, or maybe he was kind of arranging so that their, their part, business partnership uh, benefits from one thing or another. Um, but that that is clearly covered by FARA is, is uh, I, I just don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's just curious because these relationships seem to be, uh, much more than, um, you know, a, a, a big uh, energy transaction. I mean, they be, based on everything that's been presented so far, they sound very personal and, and political in nature in addition to commercial, don't they? That's, that's exactly right. And think about it from, you know, put yourself in the mind of people who have been kind of arranging these sorts of business relationships with China for a long time. This stuff is seen as perfectly normal. Uh, and Biden probably thought it was perfectly normal because, frankly, it is normal. It, it, it maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. And so, um, I don't think we can necessarily take too much from that. He is Arthur Bloom, editor of the American Conservative Online. He's previously deputy editor of the Daily Call and a columnist for the Catholic Herald. Arthur Bloom, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Take, take care. care. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. And as we uh, close out uh, this eventful historic week, I wanted to go back to uh, an interview that uh, Attorney General Bill Barr gave to Wolf Blitzer several weeks back in advance of the election, where the discussion turned to this vote-by-mail push around the country, the exposure that such a, a election has to fraud. The bipartisan commission chaired by Jimmy Carter and James Baker said back in 2009 that mail-in voting is fraud. Let me talk. In the newspapers, in networks, hmm. academic studies saying it is open to fraud and coercion. The only time the narrative changed is after this administration came in. Elections that have been held with mail have found substantial fraud and coercion. President Trump got burned, it would appear, 
and the American people by extension, some 70 million. Uh, you know, it's interesting, too, the um, importance of this fight. And uh, if uh, the count ca- is codified against President Trump, there is going to be a real push and a lot of pressure with uh, Joe Biden being reported by media organizations to be at 270 or better to just uh, drop all the suits, stop the fighting and just uh, you know graciously accept defeat and move on. Nothing to see here. And then uh, the Democrat socialists can just uh, shuffle along and we can pretend that uh, those uh, suits that were filed, the uh, filing for a recount in Wisconsin, that was just all sort of election gamesmanship. But it's nothing real and it's nothing to be concerned about. No, actually, it is playing with fire. And so is the unwillingness to fight for the rule of law in this country, as we've seen play out in spectacular fashion uh, uh, across a range of issues just this year, much less throughout the Trump administration. And let me tell you something about the Republican Party, what it is going to have to figure out if they're going forward without uh, the White House. Uh, they're going to have to figure out if they're going to return to being a Republican Party that uh, is looking, as Malcolm Wallop famously said, uh, if the Democrats introduce a bill to burn down the U.S. Capitol, Republicans would uh, compromise and agree to phase it in over three years. If that's the Republican Party, they want to that uh, the powers that be within the Republican ranks, McCarthy and and McConnell and others, if that's what they want to go back to then that will be a Republican Party that does not win national elections and does not control the House or even to the extent that they maintain control of the cycle, the Senate, for very much longer. I know what it's uh, like to be part of a Republican Party that is has enemies inside the perimeter, that is largely complicit with the other side, and that seeks to just carve out sinecures, special deals, cut-ins for themselves via their public office with their colleagues across the aisle, because that was what the Illinois Republican Party became over the last 50 years, and now the Illinois Republican Party is a non-entity, doesn't exist. So a choice is ahead for the Republican Party in a post-Trump presidency, if that's what comes to pass. Something to consider among so many things that we hope we've given you to consider this week. Thanks for joining us all week. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show.